0: Our second message this afternoon is from Mr. Matt Steele. It is entitled, A New Independence Day. Well, this is an interesting prop, isn't it? Good afternoon, everyone. Let me try that again. Hi, Joseph. How's everybody doing? Beautiful Sabbath day. Getting ready to celebrate uh, the victory of the British, finally getting rid of the Americans. That's how it goes, right, I think? Isn't that right, Mark? Yes, so next Tuesday, the 4th of July, Um, A day that, uh, well, you may be surprised to learn, is not celebrated in England. (laughs) uh, I I know. Uh, In fact, uh, all English calendars skip directly from the 3rd to the 5th. I don't know how we resolve that at the end of the year, but uh, I'm sure it involves a lot of drinking. I was actually asked that question uh, many years ago, not long after I moved here. Do do you celebrate Fourth of July in England? No? Why do you think we would? Because what? For the most part. A few of us came over a little later, so. But what was really interesting, um, I mean, you may know this, but the Fourth of July was not actually the date that Congress voted on and approved the Declaration of Independence. It was actually the second of July. So tomorrow, we should be having all our celebrations. In fact, John Adams thought it was going to be the second. That would be the holiday. And he wrote that to Abigail in one of his letters, saying that this will be remembered throughout all generations. He was off by a few days. It was, of course, on the 4th of July that the actual final document it went through a few more revisions and it went to the printers and was published on the 4th of July so therein lies the, the history behind behind that but, you know it really was a master work I don't know if you've read it recently but it was a master work in the English language it has to be English in there somewhere we've got to take credit for it some way But it was also a masterwork of not just American principles, but Anglo-American principles as well. And I I always express to different folks at work that like to uh, goad me every once in a while about my heritage. I will remind them that um, a lot of the principles began in England. And then they became stalled. They stopped. And that progress towards democracy and freedom and and liberty for all classes of people needed a big reboot and of course it did get that reboot many of its claims in the the Declaration of Independence were actually based on a document that was passed by the English Parliament in 1689 I don't know if you're familiar with that it is considered to be the English Declaration of Rights and I just want to give you Uh, Some of the lines in there that you will probably find really familiar. One of them was, keeping a standing army in time of peace, unless it be with consent of parliament, is against the law. No standing armies were allowed, unless it was obviously a time of war, and they were for the protection of the nation. The election of members of parliament ought to be free. Up to a certain point, it wasn't they weren't free. And they slowly became broader and freer in those elections. Levying taxes without the grant of parliament is illegal. illegal. The American version is what? No taxation without representation. Isn't that interesting? Excessive bail ought not to be required nor excessive fines imposed nor cruel and unusual punishments inflicted. And these are just a few of the the clauses that were adopted from English legal system, from the English legal uh, declaration of, of rights. And so, of course, the 13 states knew about these. It was part of the law of the land because before they were states, they were colonies, and everything was based on English law. And so in Congress... On July 4th, 1776, the unanimous declaration of the 13 United States of America says, When in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another, and, assume, and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature, out of nature's God, entitle, entitled them. A decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare their causes which impel them to the separation. One of the things that's behind that, I think, in my English opinion, is that they were using the legal structure of the English system to make their argument legal. This was a legal document. It was not outside of the bounds of English civil law. It was a legal document. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed, that whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or abolish it and to institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. Prudence indeed will dictate that governments long established should not be changed for light and transient causes. And accordingly, all experience has shown that mankind are more disposed to suffer while evils are sufferable than to right themselves by abolishing the forms to which they are accustomed. But when a long train of abuses and usurpations pursuing invariably the same object evinces a design to reduce them under absolute despotism, it is their right, it is their duty to throw off such government and to provide new guards for their future security. Just amazing passage, fantastically written, beautiful document. And so with the passing of this this measure, everything was changed. The world was changed. And there was a new certainty about what was going to happen. Because up until this point, the 13 colonies could have found a means by which to restore relations to England. And up until this point, England would have said there's some sort of reconciliation available. But once they voted for this, all separation was cut. There was no going back. Win or lose. They, they either had to win and become independent or be crushed by the British Empire. And so the war that they all dreaded continued. One side willing to accept war so that freedom and peace could be attained and the other willing to make war rather than lose an empire. What would that have been like to be in that room, to be one of those delegates considering the awesomeness of what they were about to do and the tremendous risk that they were about to take it was a war of independence but in another way it was a civil war it was a civil war between brothers and i suppose you could say it was the the first american civil war or the second english civil war because there had been civil wars between brothers already in this long path towards freedom. It's very interesting, on one of her letters, Abigail Adams, when she arrived in London, she was joining John Adams many years uh, later. Uh, He was, of course, the first uh, foreign minister to the court of St. James in England. Imagine being the first ambassador from the United States right after independence. But when she arrived, she noticed, and she wrote this in her diary, because it was, I guess, surprising to her. She recognized the faces. They were familiar faces, because they were the kinds of faces that they would see in Boston, and New York, and Philadelphia. And you're like, well, of course. But it's interesting what war does to the mind, right? It it creates out of brothers them and us they're the enemy and look the enemy looks just like us it was a civil war but what does all of this have to do for us and and do with us today i mean certainly we should remember history i i Think that we should remember the 4th of July. We should celebrate the 4th of July. We should remember the, the freedoms that have been brought about on that day and the sacrifices subsequent to that day. And perhaps maybe we should celebrate it more than we have in the past because looking at the state of affairs today, our religious freedom for one is in greater peril than it's ever been perhaps since the founding But more than that, for you and I as Americans, or maybe as Mark and I, British Americans, this should take on a different meaning. Because as Christians, America's story can remind us about something that's going on in the world that God has been directing and guiding. And when we look at that history, and we look at the impact that God has had on the world. Gives us insights, maybe encourages us to look forward to this potential, this new Independence Day that may be out in front of us. In 1755, a young 19-year-old Harvard student writes a letter to a cousin of his and a fellow student. And in that letter is a remarkable prophecy. Now, this individual didn't claim to be a prophet, but he did write a prophecy. And a large part of it would come true in his own lifetime. He wrote, all that part of creation that lies within our observation is liable to change. Even mighty states and kingdoms are not exempted. If we look into history, We shall find some nations rising from contemptible beginnings and spreading their influence until the whole globe is subjected to their ways. And when they have reached the summit of grandeur, some minute and unsuspected cause commonly affects their ruin and the empire of the world is transferred to some other place. Immortal Rome was at first but an insignificant village inhabited only by a few abandoned ruffians but by degrees it rose to a stupendous height and excelled in arms and arts above all the nations that preceded it. But the demolition of Carthage, uh, what one should think would have established it in supreme dominion by removing all danger, suffered it to sink into debauchery and made it at length an easy prey to barbarians. England immediately upon this began to increase. The particular and minute cause of which I'm not a historian enough to trace, began to increase in power and magnificence and is now the greatest nation upon the globe. Soon after the Reformation though, a few people came over into the new world for conscience sake. Perhaps this apparently trivial incident may transfer the great seat of empire to America. It looks likely to me. For if we can remove the turbulent galaxy, our people according to the exactest, exactest computations will in another century become more numerous than England herself. Should this be the case since we have, I may say, all the naval stores of the nation in our hands, it will be easy to obtain the mastery of the seas and then the united force of all Europe will not be able to subdue us. The only way to keep us from setting up for ourselves is disunite us. Divide et imperia, which is to divide and conquer. Keep us in distinct colonies, and then some great men in each colony desiring the monarchy of the whole. They will destroy each other's influence and keep the country in equilibrio. And that was John Adams in 1755. He was 19 years old, and he could see a new country, a powerful country, the new superpower, just starting. Fascinating reflection from history. And when I, was amazed, when I read this, I was just amazed that he had that insight at such an early age, such a young age, that this United States could and would become the seat of the empire. Now, I know that's not a political term that is liked to be used in the United States, but nonetheless, it's a superpower. And if you're a superpower, you're an empire. But while I was reading that letter, another thought came to my mind. Maybe it did, too, uh, for you. I was kind of just seeing an image in my mind of empire. And probably because I've read it before, I naturally fell in my mind to this image of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And the great image of empires that he saw there. World ruling empires. Passed from one to another. So as we join, join Daniel in, in uh, chapter 2. In verse 27. You know the king had had this dream, right? It troubled him. He wanted a real answer. He didn't want the kind of answers that he had obviously received before. No, no, no. I'm not going to tell you the dream. You're going to tell me the dream. And then you're going to give me the answer. And it's a double verification. So that when you tell me the answer, I know that this is real. That this is coming from God. So in verse 27, Daniel answered in the presence of the king and he said... The secret which the king has demanded, the wise men and the astrologers and the magicians and the soothsayers cannot declare to the king. But there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets, and he has made known to the king, King Nebuchadnezzar, what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions on your head upon your bed were these. As for you, O king, thoughts came to your mind while you were on your bed about what would come to pass after this. And he who reveals secrets has made you has made known to you what will be but as for me this secret has been revealed to me because I have uh, not uh, because I do not have more wisdom than anyone living but for your sakes <coughs> you make known the interpretation to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your heart your king will watching and behold a great image and the This great image, whose splendor was excellent, stood before you, and its form was awesome. This head was of fine gold, and its chest and arms were of silver, and its belly and thighs of bronze. Its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay, and you watched while a stone was cut out without hands, which struck the image on its feet, on the feet of iron and clay, and broke them into pieces." And then the iron and the clay and the bronze and the silver and the gold were crushed together and became like chaff from the summer, summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that no trace of them was found. And the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. What a terrifying sight that must have been for him. What is, what is this about? What's the meaning of this? He knew that it was important. It really deeply troubled him. So Daniel said, this is the dream. Now we will tell you the interpretation of it. Before the king. You, are king, or king of kings. For the God of heaven has given you a kingdom of power and strength and glory. And wherever the children of men dwell, or the beasts of the field and the birds of heaven, he has given them to your hand and has made you ruler over them all. You are the head of gold. And so from history, we see that, that Babylon was that head of gold. It was that great, powerful kingdom. It, it ruled the known world at the time. It had tremendous riches and power. It invaded countries. It moved people from one part of the world to the other. It did whatever it wanted to do. It was a powerful empire. And in a man's eye, we might lord that. I don't know if you've ever gone on the internet and looked at a, did a search, or you know, Google, and the empires of the world. And this, there's more than you would think. There's lots of empires. Regional empires in different parts of the world. To be on that list in the biblical terms, to be top of that list. Nobody else is going to be more powerful than you, have more splendor than you. You're the very top. And yet, where's that empire now? Where is it? It's not here. It's gone. And, in fact, I've seen bits of that empire hanging on the walls in the British Museum. It's gone the way of all empires. And it's great friezes and and statues and so on have become just the objects of other powers. And that's almost a way of showing how powerful they became, right? We have these collectibles from the ages past. Daniel continues in verse 39, But after you shall rise another kingdom inferior to yours, We see that as the Medes and the Persians. And then another, a third kingdom of bronze, Alexander the Great, the Greco-Macedonian Empire, which shall rule over the earth. The fourth kingdom shall be as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron breaks in pieces and shatters everything. And like iron that crushes, that kingdom will break in pieces and crush all others. And That's what Rome did for sure subdued. In fact, it subdued all of the areas of the previous empires. Subdued parts of Babylon and Persia and Greece and Macedonia and then continued on into Western Europe, into England, North Africa. But at this point, our clear view of history stops. What happens next well, there's lots of theories about what happens next. And it's obscured. We, had, we maybe would think that we have some ideas, but we're not there yet. We're not reading it as history. It's still prophecy. He says, Whereas you saw the feet and toes partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, the kingdom shall be divided. Yet the strength of the iron shall be in it, just as you saw the iron mixed with ceramic clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of clay so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly fragile and as you saw iron mixed with ceramic clay they will mingle with with the seed of men but they will not adhere to one another just as iron does not mix with clay and there's a lot that we could dig into there what do the toes mean what's the number 10 uh, and what's the significance of that and why the clay Why the iron? But that's for another time. Because what I really want to get to is what's next. Because ultimately that's what's more important. Is what happens after this list of empires have had their day. What happens after that is more important. In verse 44 Daniel says, And in the days of these kings, In the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms. It shall stand forever. Inasmuch as you saw that the stone was cut out out of the mountain without hands. And it broke in pieces the iron and the bronze and the clay and the silver and the gold. The great God has made known unto the king what will come to pass after this. The dream is certain and the interpretation is sure. The stone cut out without hands. It will strike that image, that great image representing all the, the world ruling empires that have been centered around the Middle East and then in, into, into Europe. Because, you know, there have been other empires Chinese and Japanese, and Indian, and, and so on. But the focus for us here is that crossroads of civilization. That's what matters in this passage. The stone cuts them, breaks them, crushes them, grinds them to dust, and then they are blown away. None of that has happened before. With each successive empire, they've inherited the characteristics of the old. And, you know, when, when the Assyrians came into northern Israel, they took away all their precious items and gold and all their wealth. And, and, again, Babylon, when they came into Jerusalem, they took away all those precious things. That's what invading powers do, right? They take away the preciousness of the, of the other. They put it on their displays and look what we did. We conquered the mighty whatever. But it's interesting. The stone crushes and blows away all of their riches and their power he does not want any of it something new is happening the richness that will be in that new kingdom is completely different so who is the stone who is the stone well, Jesus makes an interesting statement in Matthew 21. It's a statement that comes at the end of the parable of the vineyard. And if we align this parable up with Daniel 2, we get some interesting perspective. I've never done this before, but it just it struck me this morning that there's some similarities here between what's going on in the world What's going on in prophecy and what's going to happen for us in the future. He says in verse 33, "Here another parable. There was a certain landowner who planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it. He dug a winepress in it and built a tower. And he leased it to vine dressers and went to a far country. Now, you know, we often look at this and we think the nation of Israel and Judah. And that's fine. That's good, and and that is in this passage. That God is the landowner. He planted the vineyard, a nation and a people. He dressed it, he strengthened them, he helped them grow. And he put in place the things necessary for them to, to bring forth fruit. And he expected to harvest that fruit, but they didn't. And while that was true, God did make such a nation. And he did leave it in the hands of vine dressers to keep it. You know, in fact, some of those leaders were right in front of Jesus at that moment. And he was talking to them in this parable. And, and it's true at that micro level. But I also think there's a different layer here that we can look at, a macro level. I think it's true in a broader picture If we consider the whole world, the vineyard, the garden. This whole world is God's creation. He planted it. He made it. He set it where it is. He put the plants on it, the atmosphere around it. He created it. He filled it with life. And he put in place the means by which we could bring forth fruit. And he, he designed it to be such that it would bring forth fruit for him. And then he placed this administration into the hands of men. Which, to our mind, we might think, well, that was a mistake. But he did, nonetheless, put the administration of this world into the hands of men. He told us to dress it and keep it. Help it bear fruit. But along the way, if you look at our history, all we have ever done is abuse it and abuse one another on it. And great men come to power, and they rule over everyone else, and the fruit of their empire, instead of going to God, goes to themselves. And in many ways, if you think about it, despots and absolute monarchs, they take the role of God. They try to. They try and take the role of this vineyard and try and take the fruit of the earth and the, the richness of the earth for themselves. Jesus continues, he says, when the vineyard time grew near, he sent his servants to the vine vinedresses that they may receive its fruit. And the vine vinedresses took his servants and beat one, killed one and stoned another. And again, he sent other servants, more than the first. And they did likewise to them. And then last of all, he sent his son saying, they will respect my son. But when the vine dressers saw the sun, they said amongst themselves, this is the heir. Come. Let's kill him and seize his inheritance. So they took him and cast him out into the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owners of the vineyard comes, what will he do? Jesus asked to the vine dressers. And they actually answered him. Right? The very people that he's accusing of of being the kinds of leaders that kill God's servants. And they said unto him, he will destroy those wicked men miserably. And lease his vineyard to other vine dressers, who will render to to him the fruits in their seasons. And notice that. They know where the fruits need to go. The fruits of the vineyard that God has planted. Whether it be Israel or the world. Are his man has constantly tried to put himself in there and take those fruits for himself. Jesus said unto them, Have you never read the scriptures? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. And whoever falls on this stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. And I think we have some really interesting imagery here that's similar to Daniel 2. The grinding down into powder, into the chaff, and blowing them away, the enemies of God. And that we have this cornerstone, that who made it? It was cut out without hands. It's part of the ancient of days. It is part of the rock of ages. And this stone is Christ. As Adams would say, this minute and in comparison small stone, he was just one man. He just appeared as one man, a small stone. And yet, this small thing rejected by the builders has become and will become the stone that crushes all kingdoms of the world, all the powers that have sent themselves up as rulers, all the despots, all the kings, and yes, all the presidents and all the prime ministers, they will be removed. They will be crushed under the weight the real king, the real ruler, the real owner of the vineyard, this chief cornerstone cut out without hands. Jesus Christ is that stone. He is the chief cornerstone. The leaders of Israel rejected him? Absolutely. Not just when he was here as a man, they've always rejected him throughout their history. Israel has constantly rejected God. Rejected that stone. They have attacked and tortured some of his servants. They've killed others. All the way down through history. And even right before, as Jesus was about to start his ministry and started his ministry, they kill another in John the Baptist. Constantly trying to take the fruit of the vineyard for themselves. But in a larger sense... We've done it in the world. We've done it in this whole world. God has sent servants, men and women of faith, into the world to preach Christ. And they have endured terrible punishments and attacks, have been killed. The whole earth bears responsibility for Jesus' death. We all brought him down to the grave. But some of us Have taken his death upon us heavenly. We are responsible for his death. His love and our sin brought about his death. But we've taken that death upon us. And we've been cleansed by his wonderful power, his blood, and he's changed us. Yeah, I'm still weak. I'm still just a man. I still fail. I still have my sins and my prides. I still lack humility and patience. But he has, began a work in each and every one of us. and changed us. But rather than Jesus coming to us as a stone and falling on us, something else happened. We fell on him. Remember that passage? It says, And whosoever falls on this stone will be broken. Which means to be broken into pieces. But on whomsoever it falls, it will grind him to powder. Now it doesn't sound like either one's a good outcome, right? Either way, you're broken apart. But he's not fallen on us to crush us. We've fallen on him so that he can break us. And that's a difference. We've been broken by him. We've been broken open. We've been broken open so he can place his life in us, his spirit in us. And when we come to him on our knees and recognizing who we are and what we have done, are we not broken? Every single one of us, broken at his feet, All our pride, all our conceits, our boasts, our vain desires, we just break apart at his feet. We mourn and grieve over what we've done, how undeserving we are of his love. We're broken at that moment. But he doesn't leave us there. He doesn't leave us as little pieces around his feet, a little piece of mat here and there, spread everywhere, making a mess does something else with this, And we get a tiny glimpse of that in Daniel chapter 2. Everybody's thinking, well, I didn't see any of that there. But remember back in Daniel chapter 2, verse 34, it says, You watched while the stone was cut without hands, which struck the image on his feet of iron and clay, and broke them to pieces. And then the iron and the clay and the bronze and all that stuff, they just got crushed blown away, and the wind carried them away. The stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Filled the whole earth. And the interpretation was that this mountain is a great kingdom that will be established on the earth and it will not be moved. He said this is a sure interpretation how does a stone, a single stone, become a mountain? How does that happen? Or well, we might say, well, you know, this is just allegory. This is just images and imagery and like almost poetry. And things can happen in, 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 that, in the mind's eye that wouldn't happen in the real world. And that may be true. But all of these things have meaning. If the stone is going to become a mountain, and the mountain is a kingdom, how does that happen? How does Jesus, that great stone, become the rock of ages, that, 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 that rock of ages, come down and become a mountain? I think if we go to 1 Peter in chapter 1, we'll find the answer. In ver- starting at verse 13, kind of cutting into his, his thoughts, but he says, Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient men, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in ignorance, but as in he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Because it is written, be holy for I am holy. And if you call on the Father who, without partiality, judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear, knowing that you are not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold from your aimless conduct received by the tradition of your fathers. I don't know if you've ever noticed this in in, in politics. It tends to be when it comes up and I see it. But the the religious conservatives, it's almost as though the, the history of our country and the Founding Fathers have taken on this level of religion or some tenets of religion. The Founding Fathers were no doubt brilliant men, but they were only men, were not redeemed by the tradition our fathers and we should be careful to to confuse the two were there Christian principles embedded and baked into the founding of the United States absolutely absolutely but that doesn't make the reverse true even the great declaration of independence the constitution, the bill of rights all of this must pale and fade into insignificance into insignificance in Christ Jesus. Even these great documents have, as we've seen in our own time, we have seen these documents corrupted by men. These things can be corrupted. We should not base our life on these things but instead on things that cannot be corrupted. We're not redeemed by corruptible things but with the precious blood of Christ As of the lamb without blemish and without spot, he indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the spirit and sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently. With a pure heart, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible, through the Word of God, which lives and abides forever. Because all flesh is grass, and all the glory of man is as the flower of the grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls away, but the Word of the Lord endures forever. How long has this Word existed for? forever we have it in the written form but the word became flesh and the flesh and and that flesh that man dwelt amongst us right the word has been here forever throughout all generations throughout all empires of man all our glorious empires the babylons and the, the babylonians the greeks the romans where are they now Every civilization passes away and is faded like grass. And even this American empire will one day pass into history. All flesh is like grass, and all that we make is like grass. Continuing on, he says, now this is the word which by the gospel was preached to you. Going into chapter 2, he says, Therefore, laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, and envy, and all evil speaking, as newborn babes, desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. Look to him. Look to him for our sustenance, not to the creations of men, not to empires, not to kings and rulers. And now, here comes the answer that we've been asking. How does this stone, cut out without hands, destroy these empires? And then how does it become the great mountain that fills the whole earth? He says, coming to him, to Jesus, as to a living stone. He is that living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also as living stones be built up into a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices, acceptable to God through Christ Jesus. Therefore, it is also contained in scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion, the chief cornerstone, elect and precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious, But to those who are disobedient the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone and the stone of stumbling and the rock of offense they stumble being disobedient to the word to which they also were appointed let me ask the question again how does that stone that's cut out without hands that great image come down and crush those empires world and fill the whole earth with this mountain this kingdom that cannot be removed have you ever stood on a mountain has anybody ever stood on the mountain not many of you stood on mountains oh there you go so depending on how high you you go up you obviously you get more perspective the higher you go When you look around at that mountain, is it one solid piece? Mountains are made up of all kinds of pieces of rock. Small pebbles, a little bit bigger rocks, and there's boulders. Different pieces come together. Now, for sure, there's some big tectonic plates under there, isn't there? There's this huge granite shelf that just forced its way up in the earth's crust. But mountains are made up of more than just one piece. We have that main part of the mountain that's underneath, that cornerstone, solid, immovable, upon which we are placed as lively stone in the kingdom of God. This is how that single stone becomes a huge mountain that fills the earth. He begins a work. He begins a process. He will remove all of the obstacles. All the kingdoms, all the authorities will be removed. Every government will bow down. and Then he will build his kingdom. And it will rule the whole world. Jesus takes our broken pieces, the pieces that we've been broken on, on him, and he shapes them into something new, into these lively stones. He makes us like him, and with us, he's going to fill the whole earth. Peter continues, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness, into his marvelous light. You are once not a people, but now the people of God who had not obtained mercy, but now obtained obtained mercy. You know, we were once not a people. You and I didn't have a bond together once, but in Christ, we are a people we have his same spiritual life force flowing through us. This 4th of July, as well as celebrating our own individual freedom that we have in this country and still do have in this country, I would ask you also to remember how much like we, how much like the revolutionaries of 1776 we are. You are. We, like them, are looking for a new Independence Day. When those kingdoms of man will be removed. And we will finally see the establishment of the kingdom of God on this earth. And we'll be seeing it established because we'll be part of it. Just like those revolutionaries. That we live in the land that will become a new country. Even though we don't see it yet. That we can be the Thomas Paines of Christianity, right? That we can share biblical common sense with a world that has lost its mind. That we can be a John Adams and a Thomas Jefferson of our age, declaring that all men are created equal and are endowed by their creator through Christ Jesus The citizenship of a kingdom that will not be removed. Hope everybody has a safe Fourth of July.